أعوذ بالله من الشيطان اللعين الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين الحمد لله الذي هدانا لهذا وما كنا لنحتدي لولا عن هدان الله ثم الصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء وسيد المرسلين وشفيع المذنبين سيدنا ونبينا وحبيب قلوبنا وتبيب نفوسنا وشفيع ذنوبنا أبي القاسم محمد والصلاة والسلام على أهل بيته الطيبين الطاهرين المعصومين المذلومين المنتجبين لا سيما مولانا وسيدي صاحب الأسر والزمان روحي وأرواه العالمين له الفداء وأجل الله تعالى فرجه الشريف ولعنة دائمة على عدائه من الآن إلى قيام يوم الدين السلام عليك يا أبا عبد الله وعلى الأرواه التي حلت بفنائك عليكم مني جميعا سلام الله أبدا ما بقيت وبقي الليل والنهار ولا جعله الله آخر الأحد مني لزيارتكم السلام على الحسين وعلى علي بن الحسين وعلى أولاد الحسين وعلى أصحاب الحسين جميعا ورحمة الله وبركاته الله صل على محمد وعلى محمد أما بعد فقد قال الله الحكيم في كتابه المبين بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم أن يعبدوا الله واتقوه وأتيون صدق الله العلي العظيم for the hastening of the return of our twelfth Imam Imam Al Hujja one loud salawat upon Muhammad wa Ali Muhammad. We continue in this month of Muharram in this new year of the Muslim community. And a new year which is not commemorated like other communities. As we know, the society in which we live, when the new year comes, when December 31st rolls around, going to January the 1st, it is a party, it is a celebration. And indeed, even for the Muslim community, this Muharram is a new year. We make resolutions to change our lives. But we don't celebrate it in the way that the society that we live in celebrates the new year. But rather, we commemorate, we grieve, we wear black. We remember the tragedy of the event of Karbala, and we, re, we, we make a resolution in our, in our lives, hopefully, that we will try and change our lives to be on the path of Abba Abdullah al-Hussein alayhi salatu wasalam, and that we will keep away from all of the evil, and all of the evil qualities and characteristics that were personified in the likes of Yazid Mal'un, of Ubaidullah ibn Ziyad Mal'un and all of the enemies of Ali Muhammad Tonight in this second night majlis of the month of Muharram, as we recall the main theme that we, have been, that we want to look at is Islam, the complete code of life. And we began with the verse from Surah Nuh, the chapter known after Prophet Noah. In verse number three where he has been quoted by Allah as saying, talking to his own community, he says, His message of submission to Allah, because what Prophet Noah was teaching to his society was Islam. It was submission to Allah. And it was made up of three components. It was made up of aqaid, of knowing who Allah is. It was made up of ethics, of morality. And it was made up of obedience to Allah, the fiqh, the ahkam, how to worship Allah. And as we said last night, that this verse will be the basis of our series this year, to see how Islam is a complete code of life for all of our needs. 
although it came 14 centuries ago, although the Quran was revealed in an era of what the Quran calls the era of Jahiliyyah, an era of decadence, of complete ignorance. Ignorance not because they didn't know or they could not know, but rather because those Arabs did not want to know the truth. Because when you know the truth, then you have to act upon it, right? When you know what is right from wrong, and you determine that this is the right path in life, logic dictates that now you need to follow it. It's like anything in life. If you know, for example, that certain foods will cause you to have diabetes later on in life, and you intentionally continue to eat those foods, you'd be foolish because you know the ramifications, you know the repercussions. When the doctor tells you that eating certain kinds of food can result in heart disease, you'll get a heart attack, you risk a stroke or dying. And if we knew those from early on and we still decided to eat and indulge in that kind of a lifestyle, we would be foolish. And so when we learn of the, when the Arabs knew the truth from falsehood and they decided to intentionally disregard it, Allah calls that era the era of Jahiliyyah, an era of decadence, of living lavish lifestyle, going above and beyond, and an era where they intentionally decided not to follow what they knew of the truth. Tonight, when we want to look at, uh, tonight what we want to look at rather is the role of the Quran in our lives. You know, let me begin with a verse of the Quran from chapter number 25, Surah Al-Furqan, verse number 30. And this verse, every time I read it, it really makes me think of my relationship with the Quran. And it brings me to a thought of the pain that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam will feel on the day of judgment. You know, we know our messenger as being rahmatun lil alameen, a mercy to all of creation. But yet on the day of judgment, Rasulullah will complain about the ummah of Islam. He will complain about the Muslims. And what will he say? Will he complain that we didn't pray namaz on time? Well, that's a problem, obviously, if we're not praying or we're not praying on time. Will he complain about the homes we didn't pay? Will he complain about our fasting in Ramadan? Maybe he may make all of these complaints to Allah. But Surah Furqan, chapter 25, verse 30, Allah quotes Rasulullah as saying a statement on the Day of Judgment that should be a verse that we all reflect upon, especially tonight in this night of Muharram, the second night of Muharram. And the verse says this, وَقَالَ Rasul, And the Messenger will say, so Allah is telling us what's going to happen in the future, on the Day of Judgment, that the Messenger of Allah will stand in the presence of Allah and He will make a statement. And what will He say? He will say, Ya Rabbi, O my Lord, inna al-Qur'an mahjuran. He will say, O my Lord, indeed my community, my qawm, my nation, the Muslim nation, the Ummah of Islam, took this Qur'an as mahjur, as he calls it. Now what does mahjur mean? It's a very interesting word. Let me give you an example so you can understand it better. It comes from the same root word as hijrah. Now I'm sure by looking at most of you in this audience tonight, you made hijrah from another country, correct? 
Some came from Afghanistan, from Pakistan, from India, maybe from the Middle East, from Iraq, from other parts of Southeast Asia or from the Middle East, you made Hijrah. Hijrah literally means you leave one place or you leave one person or you leave one thing and you move somewhere else. This is what Hijrah is. For some people, Hijrah is temporary. You live in Canada, you get your degree, you go back home. For some people, Hijrah is a permanent fixture of life. You came to Canada, your children are born here, your grandchildren are born here, and you're not going back home, maybe except for a vacation or to meet family or relatives back home. Whatever the case may be, this is what Hijrah is. The word Allah uses in this verse, the words of Rasulullah, where he says that indeed my community took this Quran, he says, Mahjuran from the same word as hijrah, meaning that they abandoned the Qur'an. They had the Qur'an, just like we have our home country and we abandon it, we leave it to come to a new country. This is the complaint of Rasulullah on the Day of Judgment. My community abandoned the Qur'an. 23 years, brothers and sisters, Allah worked through, messenger, through the Messenger of Allah, the Prophet worked through the guidance of Allah to deliver this book that we have today called the Quran. You know, the Prophet put up with people calling him Majnoon. They said, this guy is a madman, he's insane, what is he saying? They called him a, uh, uh, a man in, engaged in witchcraft. He was doing magic on the people. They said he's a sha'ir, he's a poet. This isn't guidance, this is just poetry he's reading. And yes, the Qur'an might sound like poetry, but it is not a book of poetry. So my point being is that 23 years, the Messenger of Allah dealt with insults, character assassination, almost killing him to the point of actually trying to assassinate him. They mocked him. They said, you know, he is Abtar. His children, his male children have died. They would make fun of him. They would physically hurt him, mentally attack him. And it was because of this Qur'an that we have today that he went through all of this turmoil. And then for the Ummah to turn around and reject the Qur'an, to not want to read or reflect or apply the Qur'an to the lives of the believers, is one of the greatest griefs that Rasulullah, the beloved Prophet Muhammad will have on the Day of Judgment. Now when we look at all other revelations, as we know in the Qur'an that many prophets were given wahi, were given revelation. Many prophets came, many messengers came without revelation. Prophet Adam, for example, alayhi salam, the first man, the first human being, the first representative of Allah, he was not given a book. He didn't have the Qur'an, he had no revelation. Because at his time, husband and wife, two people, was not a complex society. They did not need laws and rules and governance because the society was very simple. You move to about four generations after Prophet Adam, Prophet Nuh came, comes on the scene, Prophet Noah, revelation begins. Prophets after him get revelation, like Ibrahim, as we know, gets revelation. Prophet Musa, alayhi salam, gets revelation. Prophet Muhammad, obviously, sallallahu alayhi wa wasallam, gets the Quran. Prophet Isa gets revelation. So prophets during the course of time when they were coming and where they were coming, 
Allah was giving them scripture based on the needs of their society. But Allah was making it clear through these prophets that that book that they would get would not be A, preserved, it would not be protected by Allah, and B, it was not meant to be for all time. So when the Bani Israel, what we call the Jewish community of today, were receiving revelation via Prophet Musa, they were being told that this is not the final revelation. Others will come after me. When Prophet Isa received the Injil, he was telling his community that this is not the final book. Other, another book will come in the future. This will tie you over until that next last prophet comes. And so we recognize the fact that Allah sent various prophets through time. Various messages came to them. It was time-sensitive, region-specific. But with the Qur'an that we have, it is a book for all time, for all eras, for all land. It's not that it is only for the Arabs or for the Persians or this group or that. No, it is a universal book meant to guide all of those who decide to open to read, to reflect, to understand it, and then to implement it in their lives. One of the things that we have to recognize as well is why is this book of Allah so important to us? You know, every time you see in the media where there are attacks against Islam and the Muslims, and we've seen this in the past, Alhamdulillah, it hasn't happened as of recent, but many times people get upset at Islam and the Muslims and the, one of the first things they do is they go to burn the Qur'an. I'm sure we've seen these videos online. It happens in America very often, in other parts of the world, in the European countries. They'll come and they'll burn the Qur'an. And rightfully so, as Muslims, we become upset at that. Right? We, don't, we should never tolerate abuse of the Qur'an or any religion for that matter, even though we don't, res we don't see eye to eye with the Jewish or Christian community, where we have to respect them. We respect their holy book. You know, just to give you an example is, as you and I know, to touch the Qur'an without wudu is haram, right? We all know that rule. To touch the, the Arabic of the Qur'an without wudu is haram for a Muslim. But what if I were to tell you to touch the Bible without wudu, if the name of God is on the page, is also haram? It's the fact. If you look at the maraja, our ulama, they tell us to touch the name of Allah, for example, in any language, in Arabic, in English, in Urdu, in Persian, in French, in Braille, to touch the name of Allah without wudu is haram. So you write the word God on a piece of paper, you can't touch that without wudu. So we might not accept the content of the Bible because we know that some of it, well, we know that some of it is in line with the Quran, we accept that, but the rest of it which deviated from the Quran, we reject it. But still we respect the book of God as it was given to these communities. But I find it strange that we will condemn people who burn the Quran and disrespect it. But when Muslims don't follow the Quran, we have no problem with that. And this is where the dichotomy comes in, that we respect the Qur'an, that we don't want people to burn it, obviously, which is recognizable as a, as a need of our community to respect the word of Allah. But when people don't follow the Qur'an, when they don't implement the Qur'an, when we see ayat of the Qur'an that tell us to do X, Y, and Z, and we intentionally you know, go against those ayat, 
We have no problem with that. So we have to recognize the fact, brothers and sisters, that the Quran is not just black on white. It's not just ink on a page or digital text on your tablet or your phone. It's a book which is there to guide, to help us, to get us to the best position that we could be in this life, but more importantly, in the world to come. Sallu ala Muhammadin wa ali Muhammad. Further to this, we recognize that the Quran is a miracle. It's a mu'jizah from Allah. A mu'jizah in Arabic of this word, it means something which is not, you, you can't compare anything to it. It is impossible to even uh, go against it. Right? There are many of the, the mu'jizat of the prophets, of Rasulullah, he did many miracles in his life. A miracle being something that cannot be replicated through science, through technology. So Nabi Isa, for example, Prophet Jesus bringing the dead to life, this was a miracle. Can science bring people from the dead back to life? Well, no, they can't. Yes, maybe if you have a cardiac arrest, they can maybe resuscitate you. Maybe they can use the technology to, to get your heart to pump again, but it's not guaranteed. We know that. I'm sure we've experienced it. We've seen this on television. But Prophet Isa could do that because that was a miracle. It was a mu'jizah given to him by Allah. Prophet Musa had miracles. Previous prophets had things that they could do to prove the authenticity of their claim that others in that society could not emulate, could not copy, could not counter. And for our era and for the end, until the end of time, the miracle that the prophet gave, although he split the moon, he was able to make trees walk to him. He did all of these miracles, but the only miracle that is everlasting, that has been challenged, that cannot be done till today is the Quran. Now, if you look at the Quran itself, I, I mean, I don't want to go into the depth of why the Quran or how is the Quran a miracle. There are many angles which our scholars take when they explain how the Quran is a miracle. Maybe we'll leave that for another, uh, another session. But one of the ways that the Quran shows that it is a miracle from Allah is the actual content of this verse, of, of this book rather. And the beauty of the Quran is that 1400 years have passed and till today, nobody has been able to bring a, forget about a verse or a book like the Quran, even one small surah like the Quran. You know, there have been attempts by Arab Christians within the last 25 years, and even previously, they actually had created a website called suralikeit.com. I think it's gone now. But they attempted to bring about a version of the Quran to create their own chapters. And the irony is when you read it, you know how weak they were because they had to borrow from the Quran and change some, some of the words. And other texts of it didn't even make sense. If you read the Arabic, you read the translation, it was completely illogical, the words that they were putting together. But Allah gave a challenge in the Quran 14 centuries ago, that if you think that this Quran comes from other than Allah, then bring a chapter like it, bring, you know, and we're not talking Surah Al-Baqarah, 286 verses, bring Surah Al-Kawthar, an example, three ayat. But over the last 14 centuries, nobody has been able to do it. And so Allah says in the Quran, for example, in chapter number 17, 
which is Surat Bani Israel, verse number 88, Allah says, Kul, O Prophet, say to the community, say to the disbelievers, Say, O Prophet, to all of these naysayers, the haters of Islam, the disbelievers, that if all of humanity, the ins and the jinn, if they were to gather together to bring the like of this uh, Quran, they would never be able to do it, even if they began to help and you know, uh, conspire with one another. So we know that the kuffar have not been able to defeat Islam and the Muslims intellectually, spiritually. Yes, they have been able to bomb us into submission, unfortunately. They've ravaged our countries, they've destroyed our homelands because they recognize the fact that the Quran cannot be replicated, duplicated. They can't alter the Quran. Even when you try to print Quran with ayat missing or words being changed, Millions of Muslims today from Indonesia to the Middle East to North America to Europe to African continent, millions upon Muslim, millions of Muslims have memorized the Quran. So even if you were to change the printed version, delete the apps from the app store, you could still not destroy the Quran because every community has Muslims who memorize this book word by word, letter by letter. You know, just before I left to come here on the, this last weekend, I met a friend in Vancouver. He's now a medical doctor, originally from Pakistan, grew up in Iran. We had met him in Iran back in about 1996 when he was about 12 years old. At that time, he, was, um, he had memorized the entire Quran. His sister, who was about 14 or 15, she memorized the Quran. A younger sister, about age nine, memorized the Quran, and her mother and their mother had memorized the Quran. Only the father, and I think he was maybe on that path, but a whole family had memorized the entire Quran. And not just memorizing that you ask them, recite Surah Fatiha, we all know Surah Fatiha. Recite Surah Kawthar, you know. You could tell him from the particular print of the Quran, the Uthman Taha script, you could tell him, read from page 350, the first verse. He would read it to you. Tell him page 412, the last verse, he could read that verse to you. He could read forward to back, back to front. He was, in a, he was a walking, literally more powerful than a computer probably. So there are people out there, even till today, there are schools in Qum, in the Islamic Republic of Iran, that specialize in teaching children memorization of the Quran. It's not a difficult thing. I have friends who memorize the entire Quran in three or four years. If you put your mind to it, anything can be done. So the point being is that they could not attack the Quran. And so they attacked us militarily. They attacked our Iman in different ways as we see happening in the society even today. But the question now comes is, well, well we can memorize it, we can learn it, we can print it. How should the Quran be implemented in our lives? Because I, obviously I wanna to get to that tonight, that how do we, actually implement the book because we're talking, talking about a book of 650 pages 114 chapters 6236 verses how do you and I who are maybe not native Arabic speakers who have a very maybe limited connection to the Arabic of the Quran how do we live and apply 
the Quran to our daily lives. You know, the first thing I would say is the Quran is not like a recipe book. You know, today you want to make a cake or you want to make dinner for your family and you'll either go the old-fashioned way and get a book off the shelf or you'll go onto YouTube and you'll find a recipe and you'll follow the steps, you'll put all the ingredients together and you'll make it and you'll have your product at the end. And you have to obviously maintain a lot of measurements and balances and processes. The Quran is not like that, where you just take a bit from here and there and you put it together. It's not like opening your fridge or your closet and you take some ingredients and put it in and mix it and cook it. No, the Quran, brothers and sisters, isn't just a book you pick and choose from on, on what we want to follow. Actually, the Quran, and, we, and if you, again, when you read the Quran from beginning to end and you reflect on it, you will see that the Quran wants to establish a foundation for the believing community. It doesn't just want to say, do this, do that, do this, don't do that, although that is in the Quran. But you know, incidentally, out of the 6,000 verses of the Quran, there's only about 300 to a maximum of 500 that deal with ahkam, the fiqh. Can you imagine out of 6,000, those who know math, 6,000 verses in the Quran, a maximum of 500 talk about ahkam. That's what one-twelfth of the Quran is only about ahkam. So the fiqh is a very small part of our religion. It's important. I, I never want to downplay the ahkam. But in the grand scheme of the Quran, there is a foundation that Allah wants us to develop, to build, and then it becomes natural. Right? When we learn about, for example, the as Allah says, Lakad Karamna Bani Adam, that we have given, we have ennobled the child of Adam, humanity. We have we have nobleness, we have dignity, we have respect, we have to respect one another at the level of human beings, regardless of the religion. Then I wouldn't have to ask Mulana, can I cheat can I cheat or steal from my neighbor? Can I have a non-Muslim who comes into my shop to buy something and can I rip him off? Because he's a kafir at the end of the day, right? No, we wouldn't ask that question because when we recognize that Allah has norms that we have to you know, follow for all of humanity, we wouldn't ask these kinds of questions. So it's not a matter of, is it haram or halal? It's a matter that, is that person a human being? Right? It's a matter, is that person a human? When we build our foundational basis on the Qur'an, when we have our world view based on the Qur'an, then a lot of the, the questions that we sometimes bring up or that we have in our mind, they become irrelevant because we look at the world through the lens of the Qur'an. And we recognize the fact that as human beings, we have a book of morality that we have to follow. Nare Takbir. So let me begin with maybe three steps that we can use as I move on in this topic for tonight. How to make the Quran more relevant and practical so we don't fall into that Verse I began with, if you recall from Surah Furqan, verse 30 from chapter 25, where the Prophet would 
protest in front of Allah that, that my community took this Quran as he says mahjur, that we abandoned the Quran. How do we preserve our respect and honor in the face of Rasulullah on the day of judgment that Ya Rasulullah, we acknowledge your 23 years of difficulties and receiving and transmitting the Quran and we did our best to follow your words wherever we may be. The very first thing is obviously to read the Quran. To read and I would also add to memorize the Quran. And obviously I'll go from there further, but first step is to read the book of Allah. Ideally we should all as a community read the book in Arabic. Really there should never be an excuse for anybody to say I can't read it. Now I don't want to say that well if you don't know how to read Arabic you know you're a bad Muslim, no. But we all have to learn. Myself, I did not learn how to read Quran until I was about 23 years old. I went to Madrasa in Edmonton. I grew up in Edmonton, as you may know. But I was never given an opportunity in the system to learn how to read. But I recognized when I got older, it's never too late to learn. Many years ago, I went to Dubai and I stayed with a friend there. And my friend's father lived there. He's about 70 years old. And at the age of 70, he was learning how to read Quran. So it's never too late, right? And I say, and I, I emphasize on the Arabic because of the beauty of the Arabic language. Even if you don't know Quran, there is a beauty in the recitation of Quran in Arabic that you will never find in English, right? Really, that, that, and that's, again, let, let, me, let me tell you a, a story about this. Not about the Quran, but about Arabic in general. So we had a friend many years ago who, who now passed away, Marhum who had multiple sclerosis, MS, and he passed away within a few short years. But when he was diagnosed with MS and he was at home, a point came where he could not be treated at home. He needed 24-hour care and his family could not provide it for him. So he was taken to a very nice place to be taken care of. His family would come often. This is way before MP3 players, before iPods and, and iPhones, so he had a cassette player and he had headphones on, and the, uh, his wife asked us if we had a copy of Dua'i Joshin Al-Kabir on cassette tape. So we gave her the cassette tape, we had uh, copied a recitation from Iran when we were there, we gave it to them, and she found that when he listened to Dua'i Joshin Al-Kabir in Arabic, he felt calm, soothed, his, his, his state of mind was, his composure was there. Now what happened one day is that as he was listening to it, the headphones or something broke, or they came out of the plug, but the, 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 the cassette player had a built-in speaker. So obviously he was listening to it with the speaker, but now the problem was is that all the people in his room were also hearing Dua Joshin Al-Kabir, and they're non-Muslims though, right? And some people down the hallway they could hear because the sound was traveling. And one day his wife comes and she recognizes that, you know, that it's on the speaker, it's not on his headphones. So she began to plug the headphones in, she apologized to the nurse, she said, I'm sorry, I didn't recognize, I didn't realize that it had happened, it's probably disturbing the other patients in the, in the hospital. And the non-Muslim nurse actually told her, if you don't mind, the other patients are feeling calm and tranquil with this going on as well. They don't understand Arabic, they're not Muslims even. But just hearing the Arabic of the dua of the, that the Prophet taught us, it brought these patients who were suffering terminal illnesses, who were on the verge of death, it brought them comfort and solace. SubhanAllah, if that could affect a non-believer, 
and, and, and a dua of Rasulullah, can you imagine the Qur'an? If they were to hear the Qur'an, you know, it, it doesn't surprise me then when Amir al-Mu'mineen would say that if we had yaqeen and conviction in the Qur'an, we could recite Surah Al-Fatiha over a dead person and they would come back to life. But unfortunately, we and myself included, we don't have that level of conviction maybe in the Qur'an. Maybe you do, I, I don't. But we see that Arabic is a beauty from Allah. Some scholars actually say that Arabic was not taught by humans. That Allah actually specifically, intentionally created Arabic as a language, as a vehicle for revelation. As opposed to English and Urdu and Persian and all these other languages which have been created by human beings. We're told that there is an opinion that the Quran, that Arabic was created by Allah specifically for revelation. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. And why do I say also memorization of the Quran? It's important to memorize as much of the Quran as we can. You know, if you think, think about this example, today before you can drive a car, you have to learn the rules of the road, right? You get a book from the motor vehicles office or you go online, you learn all the rules of how to drive. You learn all the symbols, a stop sign, a yield, all the signs, what they mean. But if you're driving on the highway from Saskatoon to Regina or to Edmonton or to Vancouver, you're not going to need to know what a stop sign does because you're not going to see a stop sign on the highway. But you know in the back of your mind, when you come across that sign, what you have to do. Whether you live in, in, in Canada or you go over to the Middle East, They'll have a stop sign, it'll be written in Arabic, but it'll be red, it'll be a eight, you know, an octagon. It's the universal sign. And so you memorize that, right? You're not gonna, you might not use it every day, but when you need to use it, when you need to know those rules, you'll have them in the back of your mind. Now when I say we should memorize the Quran, I say it for the same thing. You and I might not need to know all of the rules or the, 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 the teachings of the Quran on a regular daily basis. Right? There are rules about fishing in the Qur'an, about hunting, the generalities of it. I'm not going to ever go out and shoot a deer. It's just not something we do, right? I don't go fishing. Maybe some of you might go fishing. Many of the rules of the Qur'an might not seem relevant today. Why should I memorize, you know, uh, ayat of Surah Al-Baqarah? Or why should I memorize portions of whatever chapter of the Qur'an? But when we recognize the fact that a time may come when I need that verse, when it fits my circumstance, when I'm in a gathering and people start talking about one another, doing ghibah, then I would remember, oh yeah, in Surah Hujarat, there's a verse where Allah says, don't talk about one another. Why? Because Allah says it is like you're eating the flesh of your dead brother. Right? I might never be in a gathering because maybe all of my friends are righteous believers, but maybe one time I'll go somewhere and they're talking about somebody. And then I'll realize, you know what Allah told me in chapter 49, لا بعضن, Don't do ghibar of one another. I didn't need that verse in my whole life until that night or that day. So that's why I say we should memorize the Quran. Not if we can't memorize the whole thing, we learn, we have a teacher, we go through ayat that are maybe more relevant in our life, and then we move on from there. But that's just the preliminary. We also need to understand the Quran. Right? And maybe most of us are coming from a background where Arabic is not our mother tongue. And I would even say this, that even if Arabic is your mother tongue, that does not mean that you know the Qur'an. 
That doesn't mean you understand the Quran as Allah wanted you to understand it. That's like me or that's like us saying, well, I know English. So in theory, I can read a medical textbook and, come and go and do, you know, brain surgery tomorrow. Just because I know English and I can read the book, it doesn't mean that I know the actual methodology. So even those who know Arabic as their mother tongue, it doesn't mean they necessarily know the Quran. They have maybe a head start, but there's also still room to improve in that area. And so that's why I say that we also need to learn and understand the Quran. Translation is the first stage, but obviously from there it goes further. We have to begin to read, listen to lectures where they offer commentary of the Quran, recognizing the fact that although our time on earth is finite, it's limited, we won't be able to maybe learn the entire Quran, but we need to start and we need to obviously have a goal in mind that we want to get to some point in our life to understand the Quran so that we can then begin to try and implement it within our lives. And that's the third stage. After we read and memorize, we learn, then we get to the next level, which is the implementation of the Quran, which is what I want to focus on for a few more moments tonight. Salu ala Muhammad wa ali Muhammad. And you know, when you talk to non-Muslims in our society about implementing the Quran, you'll begin to get a lot of very strange looks. They'll say, you're trying to bring Sharia into Canada? You're trying to make this like your back home countries where you have all of these arcane laws? And you ask non-Muslims that, yeah, we want to live the Quran in our lives. They'll give us usually three main things. They'll say, well, you Muslims, you want to bring the Quran to Canada because you want four wives. Because right? that's all they've heard, that Muslims can have up to four wives, men. They'll say, you want to have Islam in Canada because you want to chop off the hands of thieves. Because that's what they hear in the media from certain Muslim groups. You commit a sin, you commit a crime, you got your hand chopped off. Or they'll say, you want Sharia in Canada because your Quran says, go and kill the mushrikeen wherever you find us. So you want to go out and mass onslaught, you know, a slaughter of all the non-Muslims to make this country Sharia compliant. And we obviously have to recognize the fact that at one level, Islam has teachings for a Muslim family, which we'll look at later on in the nights. The, 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 the teachings of the Quran about a family, the Muslim family structure are unique. That four wives is one exception to the rule, which is never a norm in, in society. Is there a, a penal code in Islam, corporal punishment or punishment for crimes? Yes, there are. Is it arcane? Is it barbaric? Well, not really when you look at it in the context even of the world that we live in today. Does the Quran say, go and kill all the disbelievers? No, it, well, yes it does, but not in the right context. If you read the verses and the chapter, you'll recognize that that is for a limited instance. There are specifics why those verses were revealed. And so when I say that we have to implement the message, what I mean is at a personal practical level, not at a nation-state level. We're not, in a, we're not having our own country, our own government here in Canada. So we abide by the rules of the country, which is a wajib for all of us. But those verses of the Quran that are, can be implemented in our personal life, and I'll give you two examples tonight, is what we should be seeking and striving to do. 
I'm sure we've all seen the Black Lives Movement that happened last year in America. It's not the first time that the African-American community has faced oppression. It's happened for 400 years since they were kidnapped from Africa and brought over and were converted into slaves. It began then, it's continuing until today. George Floyd, the marhum who was killed last year, when that police officer had his neck on his, or his knee on his neck rather, that was just one example of discrimination against the African American community. It's happened before, and it will continue to happen until America and the American public recognize the evils of their system, that their country was built on injustice, on intolerance, on discrimination. Their country was built on the backs of the Africans who were taken from their homeland, and they have to, and they have admitted it, and until they can redress the wrongs, just as in Canada, what we have done, what the Canadian governments and the Catholic Church have done to the indigenous population, the residential schools, and I'm sure we've read about the horrors of the mass graves that they are finding, until the Canadian government addresses, and the Catholic Church, I should say, also address the wrongs that they have done to the indigenous people, this level of oppression will continue in Canada against the ind indigenous, in America against the indigenous and the African-American community. And so the Quran, to show us how the Quran sought to destroy discrimination, Allah didn't say, be good to one another. Although he did, but not in those words. But he wanted us to think and reflect on the world around us, and then on our own, under, on, on our level. So he, he sought to project his creation on the, at the world level, and then to bring it down to our level. So if you look at chapter 35, Surah Fatir, verse number 27 and 28, the first verse almost seems to be irrelevant, but let me mention it to, to show you how these two ayat, they work together to destroy discrimination and racial superiority in the Muslim community. Allah says, Alam tara anna anzala ma'an? Do you not see how Allah sends down water from the sky? And so that when that water comes down, he says, then we bring forth from it produce, fruits and vegetables of various colors. Right. That right there, just stop and think about that for a moment, brothers and sisters. Water falls from the sky. Obviously, we know there's a whole process of the evaporation. It goes into condensation, goes into the clouds, and then it comes back down to earth. But this water, which is colorless, if you look online, you'll read that the, the fruit, the apple, there are 7,500 different varieties of apples on this earth. Can you imagine from water which has no color, which is you know, tasteless, we get 7,500 different kinds of apples. There's red, there's yellow, there's green, there are light white colored apples and maybe ones we've never seen that come in other countries. All from water, which Allah says we sent down. And then he says, وَمِنَ الْجِبَالِ جُدَدٌ بِيذٌ وَحُمْرٌ مُخْتَلِفٌ أَلْوَانُهَا وَغَرَابِيبَ سُودٌ He says, not only the fruits and vegetables, but look at the mountains. Now I know you're in Saskatoon, so there's not many mountains. It's pretty flat around here. But where I'm coming from, from Vancouver, I look outside of my window from the masjid every morning and I see the Canadian Rockies. And as Allah says, the mountains are streaks of red and white and various colors. 
and as well as raven black, dark black in color. And then to complete this picture, as Allah shows us the world of creation and then the world of humanity, He says, rather. And then of humanity and animal kingdom, you have people of various colors. People who are brown, although most of us are brown, we're all a different shade of brown. If you look at Caucasians, they're all a different shade of white. You have Africans who are different shades of black. They're not all black as in a particular color. Animals are different colors. You have cows which are black, which are white, which are spotted, which are all the different colors as you see when you drive through the, the farms around Saskatoon. So Allah says all of this is there. Humanity are different colors, but then He gets the crux of the matter where He says, the only people who have the love and the fear and the awe of Allah, who recognize these, the, the variety in humanity, are the ulama. Not Mawlana, not Shaykh, the, the Mawlana, the Alim. We, we can become ulama. People who know this, the beauty of Allah. People who have ilm, who have knowledge of what Allah has put into place. Right? This verse doesn't say only Mawlana has fear of Allah. No, Allah says when you get to a level of recognition of the, of the creation that Allah has put into place by studying the Quran, by reflecting on it in the, out, in, in the world around us, we become ulama, we become people of knowledge because we understand what this book is all about. The book doesn't teach us, and you know, unfortunately we see this in many Muslim communities where people of one ethnic background are not welcome in the masjid. Whatever background, I'm not going to single out any community, but unfortunately this happens in our Shia community as well, where a particular nationality are just not welcome to come into the center. And if their youth were to propose to our children in marriage, we would be shocked, we would be dismayed that why is this person, this background, wanting to marry my daughter or my son? So we have racism, unfortunately, within our midst, in our communities. But the Quran came to destroy this. The next point I'll end with this is the destruction of the environment. And you know, we hear this so much in these days about environmentalism, about global warming, climate change. And you know, today science is telling us it's because of the burning of fossil fuels and all of what we have done as human beings that we have put ourselves in the predicament that we are in today. You know, Again, as I said, I said I'm coming from Vancouver. Two months ago, we had the heat dome. It was over 50 degrees for over a week. Over a hundred, so over a thousand people died because of heat stroke. People who didn't have air conditioning at home, who didn't have, maybe couldn't get up and get water to drink. Can you imagine a thousand people dying in a week because of heat in Canada? Were this to happen in Iraq with rolling blackouts or in Pakistan or Afghanistan because of the intense heat, we might say, okay, even there it's not acceptable. The governments have failed us. But in Canada, for a thousand people to die in a first world country is unacceptable by any stretch of the imagination. And who is to blame? Well, you go back to the Quran, and this is where I say we have to live the Quran. Because in chapter number 30, Surat Rum, the chapter of the Romans, in verse number 41, Allah clearly says, ظَهَرَ الْفَسَادُ فِي الْبَرِّ وَالْبَحَرِ بِمَا كَسَبَتْ أَيْدِ النَّاسِ 
corruption, destruction has happened on the land and the seas, on the oceans, because of what people have done. You look at the pollution in the ocean, the amount of plastic in the oceans is unimaginable. Just go on to CBC and look at documentaries of the ocean and the amount of pollution. They say there's more plastic in the ocean than there is marine life today. More plastic and pollution in the ocean than there is fish in the ocean. That, can, that sets off an alarm bell. And who's, who's to blame? It's us, it's humanity. And we don't have to get David Suzuki or CBC to tell us this. The Quran told us that the corruption that you see, the, the degradation of the soil, the environment, the weather shifting, you know, all of this that we have happening today is because of what you and I have done to this earth. We burnt the fossil fuels. We used, you know, all of this great stuff to make life easier. We used cars and all of these modern means of convenience. But at the same time, we have destroyed the earth. Had we known, had, had we promoted this verse of the Quran a thousand years ago, we would have recognized, the humanity would have recognized that we will be responsible for the destruction of Mother Earth. But we had the Quran on our shelf and we read it in month of Ramadan and then we closed the Quran and we put it away and we never taught it to our, not only others, we never taught it to ourselves. We never looked at the Quran and said, hey, there are problems of discrimination. What does the Quran say? We never said, there is marital problems between husband and wife. What is the Quranic response to it? And we allowed these things to fester, to grow, and now we're at where we're at. And now we're talking about changing our lifestyle, right? going to EV, electric vehicles, to change this and do that. Maybe it's too late. Maybe now we are destined to live a life on earth as it is today. But I would say, you know, that, was, that we play the, the gloom card. No, we have to recognize that it's never too late. As believers, first and foremost, we need to read the Quran. As I said, we need to understand the Quran. We need to implement the Quran. And maybe these societal problems that we're facing, whether it's between the husband and wife or the children or the environment or discrimination, Maybe we can turn back the hands of time and get us back to how we used to be back in the day when we didn't have these problems. But that means we need to take a, take a critical look at ourselves, look ourselves in the mirror, and recognize where we have gone wrong with the Quran. And not only with the Quran, but with Muhammad and Ali Muhammad alayhim wa salatu wa salam. And that is what these nights of...